guys. Uh, now Pastor Brian's going to come up and lead us in the Word, and it is so great to have him and Sherry back with us from sabbatical. So let's give a warm welcome to our Pastor Brian. Thanks, buddy. Looks like we're going to get a little bit of a windy day today. It's one of the reasons why uh, we don't have our little uh, tents up today, so apologize about that, and hopefully it won't be too hot, and hopefully I won't preach for two hours, so you're welcome. Um, joke. Uh, glad you guys are here this morning, and to our online crew, thank you for uh, tuning in. Obviously, there's a lot of places to tune in. You've chosen to tune in here. Thank you. Uh, we're excited. Man, God's doing a cool new work in our church family, on the Central Coast, in our community. We're really excited to see what God is doing as people are kind of coming out um, beyond sort of this post-COVID uh, world and to just be a part of uh, fresh new work that God's up to in this world. I'm stoked. I'm super stoked to be a part of it. I'm glad you're a part of it as well. So what I want to do right now is I want to invite you guys to open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Luke chapter 11. I want to give you a little bit of a information as to what we are looking at. Um, before we jump into that, a couple things. One of the things we like to say as far as a church, you, know, I get, you guys, if you need a Bible, feel free to raise your hand. We have ushers that will get you a Bible. Um, also, at the end of our time together here, we're going to have a time, we're going we're gonna to actually go offline, but we're going to have a time together um, post- live stream uh, where we're going to partake of communion together. We have these little cups and on top there's a little wafer and um, it's super convenient and it's super like clean. So uh, we'll do that together as a church family. Um, but one of the things we like to say for us as a church, uh, we build our vision, our mission, who we are around three major aims. And we like to think of it this way. Um, number one, a desire for God's presence. Um, number two, transformation, ultimately to be like Jesus. Number three, mission. So presence, transformation, and mission, those three things. Uh, we long to encounter God. That's what his presence is all about. That's why we gather here. Uh, we can have moments of encounter with God on our own, but one of the ways in which God truly shows himself is in the community of his people. It's one of the reasons why we gather as a community, as a large community like this, but also in smaller communities in our small groups, and our community groups. Uh, and then secondly, as far as we expect God to change us, transformation. Uh, some would even describe it as formation. But I like the word transformation because it plays into the passage in Romans chapter 12 that what God is up to in our lives is transforming us, reshaping us, remaking us so that our lives ultimately would reflect Jesus. And then finally, uh, we are not meaningless in this world. Uh, we are not just kind of meandering through life trying to figure out what life's all about. We have a mission. If you are a follower of Jesus, you and I have been tasked with a mission. God has a plan. He has an agenda. Our hope, our aim is that as we are being transformed, that we would adopt and live into and say yes to God's agenda. I love the fact that what God does, the oftentimes the way he takes our lives and transforms us is he uses all the gnarly bad stuff that you and I have gone through. It's, 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 it's all redeemed. God uses it as in means of our lives to bring blessing to the lives of other people. The pain, the suffering, the hardships, the trials, the COVID stuff that we go through, the lockdowns, the all of these things that we go through, God uses as we say yes to him. I was just talking to a brother earlier who is several months sober. God's using him in the lives of other people to get sober, to help them. I talked to another gal 
a sister in our church that had gone through cancer and is kind of come out on the other end. And now she's using that deep trauma and pain and hardship in her life to counsel and bless and encourage other people that have gone through. That's what I'm talking about. That's what it means to say yes to God, even in the midst of our pain, our trauma. And then God uses that redemptively so that we become a blessing. That's what we're we, what we mean when we talk about mission. So God's presence, transformation, and then mission. Those are the three major aims that we build our church around in everything that we do. So with that being said, we began last week a brand new series. Uh, last week was our very first message. So if you were not here last week, I'd highly recommend uh, checking out our podcast and listening to what we talked about. I think it's actually really important because it plays into the larger scope of what we are looking at. So we looked at the theme of the image of God, the bigger subject title of the message that we are looking at is called um, Gospel of Center. And this is a really strategic phrase because uh, everything that we are looking at hopefully is framed around the gospel, ultimately. But there's a subtitle. So it's Gospel as Center in Matters of Race, Justice, and Humanity. And I feel like this is a really unique moment in the history of the church, especially here in America, to begin to address and think about biblically, critically, uh, the ideas of race and injustice and ultimately what it means to be truly human. And so this is a really unique moment for us as a church. Uh, one of the reasons why I think it's really important for us to look at this uh, is because we realize there's a lot of anxiety around these things within our life. Uh, COVID has also created its own unique levels of anxiety, but add to that the type of injustice and racial types of inequalities that have happened, that have been brought to the surface, that have always, for the most part, been there. Um, it's, I've had people describe it this way, that, that things like racism and injustice are, are not new. They're not even getting necessarily worse. They're just getting recorded, and they're becoming publicized. And so this is not an opportunity, a moment for the church to turn away and be like, we don't want to talk about this. This is a really unique opportunity for the church to say, man, these are things that are on God's heart. These are things that are part of God's agenda. So how do we say yes to God and enter into some of these things in, a, like I said, a critical but ultimately a biblical way? Um, so the fact of the matter is, is that we want to address these things because there's two extremes that oftentimes can happen. On one hand, there is an uncritical adopting of the language, vocabulary, and sentiments of our culture that oftentimes can lead to distortions of ultimately what God's really up to. Uh, at the same time, there can be a tendency on behalf of some that have watched the narrative in the larger media and are frustrated by it and just kind of look at it and then there is a tendency to uncaringly be dismissive of the pain and the hardships and the injustices that people go through. And that's not the heart of God either. So what we want to really do is kind of adopt a mindset that's neither one of those, but ultimately reframed around the gospel. Tim Keller uh, put it this way. I think he's totally spot on. He says, I've found that many people in the church fall into one of two categories. They are either really into justification. This is a big, fancy theological word for justification by grace through faith alone, meaning salvation. They're really either into the gospel of justification, uh, but not justice. Or he goes on to say they love justice and have very low regard for justification. I, I think he's totally spot on. I've been pastoring for a really long time, almost three decades. I've had thousands and thousands of hours of conversation with people, and I, based upon even my own subjective experience, would totally agree with that. There's oftentimes these two extremes, and what we're 
beginning to realize is that there should not be these two extremes. There should be a tethering together the reality of justification along with the importance of justice because these both are matters that God cares deeply about. So one of the things that we said last week, again, some of this is recap, is that following Jesus requires, number one, compassion, that we weep with those who weep. We feel the pain that others are feeling. We might not understand it. We may not even agree with it, but we feel it. That's a hard thing. And I think, look, for some of us, you're still like in the remedial relational phase, meaning you have had relationships with people and they always go south pretty quick. You're like, I don't get it. Why am I so unlucky when it comes to relationships? It's possible. Again, I'm not saying for sure. I don't know you. I don't know your story, but it's possible that for some reason baked into your relational landscape is an inability to feel pain for other people's hurt. You guys following? I mean, I've been married for a long time. And the fact of the matter is the thing I've learned is that I don't need to always fully understand exactly what my wife's going through. I don't need to always understand it. But I do need to at least demonstrate compassion and ask questions and show love and show care and give a back rub or make a meal or do whatever I can to somehow demonstrate that I'm in the long run with you in this pain that you are suffering through and vice versa. I expect the same thing. But the point that I would make is this, is that number one, following Jesus requires compassion. Number two, it requires uh, a a sense that we care for the things that are central to God's agenda. Believe it or not, justice is central to God's agenda. So today, and really for the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at a two-part series on this subject matter of justice. What that means, why that's important, and I'll explain that in just a moment. So One of the things that we mentioned again last week by way of review, how are we planning on doing this series? So this is how we're planning on doing this series. Number one, we'll have a time of teaching, which is what I'm doing right now. But because the teaching is a little bit shorter than what we have typically done pre-COVID, so things are kind of uh, truncated quite a bit, actually, um, we are trying to pack in as much information as we can in a short amount of time, which requires uh, a whole lot of editing and sometimes uh, cutting off things that maybe we're not able to do. So that might create a context for some of us to be like, oh, man, I wish you said more about X, Y, and Z. Or why did he say that and not this? And there's a tendency to become critical of that. So what I'm asking of you, show grace towards me and those that are involved in speaking and communicating, is that it's already a tough task to just talk, right? And secondly, to be able to talk in a limited amount of time, trying to pack as much information as you can in the short amount of time as you know, broadly as you can while creating context and everything else. So number one, teaching. Number two, a posture of humility, which kind of plays into what I just said, grace and so on. Um, this, is, this is a place for all of us to learn and grow, which requires humility, which means every one of us are at different stages and places in processing and thinking about these types of matters that are central to the heart of God. So number three, uh, a time of confession and pardon and seeking God and turning our hearts towards uh, posture towards God, saying, God, we might not have all the answers. We might not have had the right posture, but we want is the right posture, which means we want to be able to have a heart that's quick to confess those areas that maybe God's inviting us to take a second look at our lives in order to grow in. And then thir- and fourthly, this uh, clarification. Again, clarifying uh, the message and questions that maybe you have. Again, like I said, there may be some information that was not uh, 
uh, part of the message or things that you wish were said but not were said, things that were maybe said that you wish were elaborated upon, and I can keep going on and on. But the point of the matter is, is that we will allow space immediately after the end of this message that if you have any questions whatsoever at all about the topic that was taught on or any other topic that's part of this larger series or just really anything, the fact of the matter is, anything you want, um, there will be space created at the very end of the message uh, for you to come forward and just ask me any questions. And if that's not enough time, if you'd like more, my wife and I are actually leading a group on Thursday nights, which is simply calling a midweek gathering, to come together. And the main objective of that, by the way, is not just to simply talk about stuff that we're doing here. Um, that will form the center basis of it. But the bigger idea is to come together to pause and reflect upon God's goodness, to process the teachings of Jesus, to pray for God's kingdom come, and then ultimately to practice radical love towards all. Those are the three, four things that we're really eager to do and engage in. So if you would like a longer time to just process some of the things that maybe were talked about here or weren't talked about here that you have questions about, write them down. Come talk to me immediately afterwards. Um, come to our thing on Thursday nights. Be a part of that. Please don't email me. I don't have time, honestly, to write lengthy emails. I'm not good at writing, and it takes way too much bandwidth for me to be able to do that. So I'm more than happy to meet with you for coffee. I'll talk to you on the phone. I'll talk to you at my midweek gathering. I'll talk to you immediately after face-to-face. We'll engage. We'll talk. We'll have a mask. We'll be six-foot distance, of course, out of respect. But the point of the matter is, let's process, because we're all at various stages, and that's important. It's part of our discipleship in Jesus to be able to do that well. So that being said, let's jump right in. Hopefully you guys have your Bibles open to the book of Luke is where we're going to look at Luke chapter 11 verses 37 through 46. And by the way, our first uh, midweek gathering was just a couple days ago this past Thursday and it was awesome. It was so, so good. My wife and I, at the end of the night, we were just like, this is so fulfilling and satisfying. Good turnout. We were just so blessed and encouraged to just be able to come together and to dig deep into relationship with Jesus and with each other. So again, if you are looking for a place to get in a little bit deeper, we'd love to have you. Just go to our website, calvaryslow.com. Right there on the front page is information to be able to sign up for that. So I want to read Luke chapter 11, verse 37 through 46. Follow along. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. And then he went and he reclined at the table. The Pharisee was shocked to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And then Jesus said to him, Now the Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you guys are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside also make the inside? So this is like um, house guest Jesus uh, invited into the house of this religious leader. And the religious, religious leader, Luke tells us, is shocked. Have you ever been shocked by Jesus, what Jesus doesn't do or what Jesus does? Have you ever been shocked by things that God has done? Maybe God has shown grace to people that you don't think deserve any grace. Maybe you've got the Jonah complex. Right? That mindset of like, they don't deserve grace, they don't deserve favor, they don't deserve kindness, and yet God showed them kindness. You're shocked by Jesus. Jesus is shocking, and that's good. That's better than boring Jesus, because boring Jesus just puts us to sleep. Jesus should shock us, because he's not like us. He does things that are oftentimes not in line with the way that we think, or the way that we process and I would suggest to you, this is the type of Jesus we really need, the one that shocks us out of our indifference and out of our boredom. And so Jesus shocks this Pharisee because he doesn't wash 
up before dinner. And again, this is not just like washing your hands. This is like a ceremonial cleansing. Jesus is not engaging in their systems or processes in order to engage in a meal, right? And so Jesus basically says, you guys are fools, right? This is Jesus, house guest Jesus, like coming into someone's house. You guys are fools. Imagine that. Here's Jesus. I think we'd all be shocked by Jesus. Verse 42, it says, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and you neglect justice and love and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplace. Verse 45. Then one of the Torah experts said to Jesus, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us. <laughs> Can you imagine? Imagine walking up to Jesus. You're like, hey, Jesus, we're, we're kind of offended by you. You offended me. That's exactly what this guy does. He walks up to Jesus. He's like, you offend us. What's Jesus going to say? He's going to be like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. Here's, listen to what Jesus goes on to say. And then he said to him, woe to you, Torah experts, for you load people with burdens too hard to bear. And you yourselves, you don't even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. <laughs> This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, right now, we want you raw and unfiltered. God, we confess that one of our, our failures as disciples and walking out the gospel in our day-to-day lives is because we want to put filters on you. We want to create you according to our likeness. We expect you to act in ways that are in alignment with how we feel, how we think. And you just don't do that. You don't play that game with us. But you do invite us to see you as you truly are. So right now, Lord, show us for who you truly are. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's Jesus uh, sitting at table with these religious leaders. And again, who are the religious leaders? The religious leaders, scribes, Pharisees, um, leaders of God's people. Their job is to rightly shepherd God's people, to point the right direction as to where to go, how people should think rightly about God. And yet here they are misrepresenting God. In a variety of ways, by way of the systems that they've created, by way of the actions and the attitudes that they have portrayed, by the offense that they've actually shown towards even Jesus, by the expectations that they have that God is going to align with them, and he obviously doesn't do that. And they they are completely out of sync and out of order. And that at the table here, Jesus responds to them. And if you are familiar with the ancient Old Testament, uh, the prophets, um, the choice of the language that Jesus uses, the word woe, is, is not just like, you know, like, this word is so strong, it's hard to even uh, point to the, the level of intensity that Jesus is basically describing here. A woe is like a declaration of judgment. It's uh, Isaiah chapter uh, 1 through 6. Uh, he's pronouncing these woes, you know, woe to you, Jerusalem. Woe to you, O people of Israel. And then chapter 6, he gets to the place where he says, woe is me, I'm, I'm dead. He realizes he's in the presence of God. He's looking God in an unfiltered manner. He's like, I'm dead, woe upon me. And here's Jesus using language that would have been similar to the language of prophets pronouncing these judgments upon, the, uh, upon these religious leaders. He's like, woe to you guys for all of these things. But what I want you to really focus on in verse 42, um, that Jesus basically says, woe to you, 
O Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and herb, and yet you neglect. So in other words, these guys were really good at being meticulous with all of these fine uh, minutiae of the law. You know, imagine having mint, all right, mint, not like, I don't know, like little mints, you know, certs or whatever, or uh, imagine, um, that's not what they had, of course, but imagine Tic Tacs, right? Imagine taking out of your Tic Tacs little box, and you lay them on a table, and then you allocate a tenth of that, and you're like, okay, a tenth of these go to my pastor, all right? He needs these desperately. Um, but he's saying that, look, you guys tithe these things meticulously. You're so hyper-focused on the meticulous details of your rules and regulations, and yet the big E on the eye chart that you have failed to see is showing justice and demonstrating the love of God. Is it possible to be overtly religious and miss the central heart of what God's all about? If your answer to that is not a big, hearty yes, then it's possible you might be part of that crew that is deeply offended by Jesus because we're all part of that. It's very possible for us to be overtly religious and to be about going to church and doing certain religious activities, and yet at the end of the day, we miss the very central heart of who God is and what God's all about. Honestly, this is one of the things I think that COVID has basically turned upside down is it's turned upside down our understanding, our conception of what church is all about. I said this from the very beginning, that those that hold on to a structure of church that's all about, you know, Sunday morning service and it's indoors and we have a certain amount of songs or song and a certain degree of sermon and a great children's ministry. If those that hold on to that and say this is what church is are, are deeply distressed in their discipleship to Jesus. And, and I get it. Look, disorientation, nobody likes that. Having our comforts turn upside down, nobody likes that. But if our central heart and hope is Jesus, like we long for Jesus, there's a great reality is that Jesus is found even in the disorientation. He's actually discovered even in the greatest trauma and pain that we face. And this is what we discover that these Scribes and religious leaders and Pharisees are basically being called out by Jesus because he's like, you guys have done so meticulously with regard to every little fine minutia and detail of the law and of your traditions, but you've missed the major, most important element. And then he uses the phrase justice. Now, what I want to do right now is I'm going to begin a dialogue or a conversation, like I said, because there'll be some processing that maybe you have. I want to help process some of these thoughts with you. Um, but in terms of the dialogue or the conversation or the topic at hand that we'll be looking at, I want to look a little bit more intensely at this word justice. It's a really important word. In fact, in the ancient Old Testament Hebrew, uh, this particular word mishpat is used some 400 times. 400 times in the entire Old Testament. You also find this word mishpat uh, comes kind of paired together with another word uh, that is used, righteousness. And these oftentimes are like Siamese twins. You will almost always find mishpat with this word righteousness. In other words, justice and righteousness, or righteousness and justice, justice, oftentimes tethered together. And we'll read some passages that kind of elaborate a little bit further on that. And what I want for us to understand here this morning is that... The idea of justice is a really important subject matter with regard to the entire Bible. Now, I realize that some of us, when we hear the word justice, depending upon 
how our mind has been shaped, we either bristle at that. We're like, oh, great. This is one of those like socialist leftist type of messages that's going to push some agenda from the left into the church. And I would suggest to you that's because you have been shaped politically to think about this. And others of you bristle, pull away, or you get all excited about this, but maybe it's a idea that's been shaped largely by the culture at large, but not so much by the Bible. What I want for us, no matter where we are at in terms of thinking about the subject matter, I want for us to take a step back and as much and as best as we can to listen to the passages that we'll read, but to do so in a way that as much as we're capable of, free from our bias, free from our subjective experience, free from how we may have once thought about it. And just let the scripture breathe fresh life into our understanding of this really important word that we'll look at in the passage here. Again, 400 times in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the same word uh, gets translated, obviously written in Greek, a different word that's used there in the New Testament. But the point of the matter is this, is this is not a marginal subject for God. It's extraordinarily central to the heart and the character of God. So that being said, I want for us to think about these in fresh, new, creative ways. Um, what I do want to do next week is we'll kind of jump into this a little bit further. Uh, Tim Keller, again, offers the church at large, I think, a really helpful critique because what he points out is that not all ideas and the ideologies around the word justice are the same. So I think it's important to describe that. He actually describes it this way, uh, competing visions of justice. He points out four competing visions of justice. So if your understanding of justice, um, it's very likely, as we talk about even this word, we might have incompatible ideas about justice because we've been shaped and formed in our mindset about this word by culture at large, by uh, professor, by, you know, CNN, by, you know, Fox News, whatever type of background or ideological background we come from has helped shape, no doubt, our understanding of justice. And a couple other things I would say about this as well. Justice is explicitly a human experience. There is no such thing as justice in the animal kingdom, right? Uh, Annie Dillard, uh, the writer, describes an experience. She gets away to go spend some time for a lengthy period of time uh, in the wilderness just to go enjoy the quiet with God and to experience and encounter um, just the solitude with God's presence. And one of the things that she discovers and describes in one of her writings is as she's watching a praying mantis, she begins to discover that the praying mantis is one of the most horrifying I don't, I, insect. I was going to call it a bug. Maybe it's a bug. An, an insect ever. It literally eviscerates and tears apart limb from limb and eats the brain. I mean, it's gnarly, dude. I'm not, like, we got kids present, so I'm going to go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this PG. But the point of the matter is, kids, you can ask mom and dad later about praying mantis. But the point that I would make is this. What she says in that description is that the concept of nature, there's no such thing as a right or wrong or justice in nature. Human beings made in the image of God, we have a sense of right and wrong what we would call justice and injustice. No one else on this planet, human beings. We might have different ideas about this, and this is why I think it's really important for us to critically and biblically think about this as a church, as a community, that are literally in cross currents right now in our broader society that's constantly talking about this subject matter. So my hope is that as we humbly and biblically and critically think about this, 
that our hearts would be reshaped by God and his spirit to make us like Jesus. So that we'd be a community that truly represents, represents God's justice to this world. All right. Tim Keller goes on to say in this article, and then we'll jump into some passages. And in fact, if you want to look up this article, you can just Google uh, which justice. It's highly worth reading. Next week, I'm going to highlight some of the elements that he talks about. So if you want to get a head start next week, um, read the article, which justice. Listen to what he says. Which justice? There's never been a stronger call for justice than those that we are hearing today. Yet seldom do those issues, those issuing the calls acknowledge that currently there are competing visions of justice, often at sharp variance. He goes on to say, in the Bible, in the Christian, in the Bible, Christians have an ancient, rich, strong, comprehensive, complex, and attractive understanding of justice. Biblical justice differs in significant ways from all secular alternatives. Did you catch that? Biblical justice differs significantly from all secular alternatives. Again, we'll look at that more next week. Without ignoring the concerns of any of them, yet Christians know little about biblical justice, despite its prominence in the scriptures. This ignorance has two effects. Number one, large swaths of the church still do not see doing justice as part of their calling as individual believers. As individual believers. In fact, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if I were to ask you, how many of you feel deeply committed to showing forth justice throughout the entirety of your life. <laughs> I think there might be crickets for the most part. And I, I know for me, if you were to ask me five years ago what I thought about that, I probably would have just thought it's all about evangelism. It's all about whatever, fill in the blank. I, I would have not have personally seen this as something of a priority of mine. So again, like I said, some of you might be a little bit further along in this. You've uh, had the benefit of reading more about this and thinking more critically about this. Maybe you've been in circumstances. Maybe you have friends that are of a minority basis within uh, California that have suffered at the hands of some of this type of racial injustice, and it's forced you to dig a little bit deeper in this, so you've got a little bit more extensive and broad uh, understanding of this. Others of us, we just, we're just not there yet. We have not yet done the hard research. And so it's just not part of our radar thinking, on our radar in terms of thinking. And secondly, he goes on to say, second, many younger Christians recognizing the failure in the church and wanting to rectify things are taking up one or another of the secular approaches of justice, which introduces distortions into the practice and lives. So what he's saying is that there are many younger, especially younger breed Christians that have watched their mom and dads groan with a sense of indifference towards racial inequalities and they've taken it upon themselves to just go full force into maybe one of these variant forms of secular justice which might not be compatible which might be a form of distortion of biblical justice so with that being said i want to do the best we can to do some hard legwork in thinking biblically critically about some of these matters so, with that being said, let's jump in, begin to look at some of these things. I'm actually going to wrap it up right now because I could keep going on and on, um, and I may have just kind of whet your appetite for this, so come back next week um, as we begin to look at this a little bit further. But one of the things I think is important for us to understand is that when we think typically about justice, I know at least for me, I can't speak for all of you, but I know for me, if you were to have asked me maybe a year, five years ago, what I would think about in terms of the idea of justice, I would probably have what we would describe as more of a negative perspective of justice, meaning... Uh, where does justice happen? If I were to rephrase it in that question, where does justice happen? I, was typic I would typically say justice happens in a courtroom. 
in a courtroom. That's where justice happens. You have a, a, a judge, you have lawyers, you have people that uh, you have the alleged guilty person, you have the one that's defending the guilty person or alleged guilty person, and you have the prosecuting attorney. You have in this courtroom uh, a, a means by which justice will be taken care of. And again, like I said, that's more of a, a, a negative form of justice. The Bible talks about that. The Bible describes a cosmic courtroom, which one day all human beings will stand before this God. But as the guys from the Bible Project described, nine out of ten times, though the Bible uses that type of terminology to describe justice, nine out of ten of the times that justice is utilized is not done in the courtroom. It's done in the individual life, which means how we treat each other. I mean, we can simply reduce it to the word neighborliness of how we treat our neighbor, how we think about those that are hurting and feeling pain, how we think about homeless people, how we think about people of my, my, how we think about minorities, how we think about people of different skin color. This is where justice is done. How we think about elderly people, people that are not able to contribute or uh, add productivity to culture at large. How do we think about the most vulnerable among us, the single mother, the unborn child, the minority? How do we think about those people? How do we engage their hurt, their pain? How do we speak up for those that are not able to speak for themselves? Uh, throughout the Bible, you actually find uh, what's commonly described as the quartet of the vulnerable, that God regularly repeats this idea. He says, look out for these people that fit into the quartet of the vulnerable. And these would be the poor, the orphaned, the fatherless, and the widow. God's regularly saying, make sure you look out for these people. Why? Because they don't have the money, the resources, the power, the privilege, the ability to speak out for themselves. And if nobody looks out for them, then they will be tossed into this place of brokenness. In other words, if you live back in the Old Testament times, you could say, poor lives matter. Widow lives matter. They matter. They matter to God. And unless we declare and think about it in that context, they will be forgotten in the larger course of culture and society. And God's saying, I always think about them. I care about them. And I'm inviting you to also care about them as well. So with that being said, I want to just take a look at a couple passages and we'll wrap this up this morning. I'm going to give you at least a definition to think about, to consider. Um, and this is a definition that I kind of helped create with a couple other bright thinkers. And I would probably say that 99% of this is other people, not me. So listen to the definition. Righteous action undertaken by either God or humans that creates equality among humanity. It's used to uplift the righteous and the oppressed and to challenge unrighteous the unrighteous professor, uh, oppressor. Let me read it again. Righteous action undertaken by either God or humans that creates equality among humanity. It's used to uplift the righteous and oppressed and challenge the unrighteous oppressor. You can describe this as exactly what Jesus did at the dinner table. He challenged the unrighteous oppressor who are putting these systems of religion upon the mass people. Jesus pronounces woe upon them. Now, this is not like a call for you to go out and start pronouncing woes on everybody you disagree with. But the point of the matter is, this is exactly what Jesus does. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is living out justice. 
Okay, I'm going to read a couple passages, and then I'll be done, and we'll partake of communion together as we finish. Just listen to a couple of these, and then I'll make some comments. I mean, just, what I want to invite you to do, just listen to the Scripture, make observations and assessments, and think, think about these things, of how this, these particular words appear in the text. Um, one of the things, one of the, there's, there's a big theological word, one of the hermeneutical tools that you can use simply means as you read the Bible and as you seek to make sense of the Bible, one of the best ways to really make sense of a certain theme of the Bible is just follow that theme throughout the entire Bible and read it in its context and try to make sense of how it appears within that context. That's a good, that's a good rule of thumb in terms of helping you as a disciple of Jesus to make sense of, of the Bible. Listen to a couple of these passages. I'll just read a couple of them and then I'll be done. Genesis chapter 18, if you want, you can open up there. Genesis 18, and then open up to Deuteronomy chapter 16, and then Psalm 89. I'll go through those quickly and we'll be done. Listen to what Genesis 18, verse 17 to 21 says. Then the Lord said, he's talking about Abraham. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? This is the famous story of God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Just listen to what he goes on to say. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham will surely, surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. There's our two Hebrew words. Righteousness is just. Then he goes on to say, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether that the outcry. He says, this is what I'm inviting Abraham to do. I'm calling Abraham to portray a life of righteousness and justice. Why? Because God says, this is who I am. It's important for us to understand justice begins in the very character of God. God is, fill in the blank, if you know, you know, fill in the blank, God is just. This is who God is. Listen to Psalm or Deuteronomy uh, 16. He says, you shall appoint judges and officers in all the towns of the Lord your God, giving you that the Lord God is giving you according to your tribes and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice is only justice. You shall follow that you may live and inherit the land the Lord your God has given to you. So what God is inviting the people of Israel to do, he says, you shall demonstrate, live forth, and act justice. And we're given a little bit of description as to what constitutes injustice. God says partiality is injustice. We call it racism, but, you know, the way, another way I've heard others describe it, it's just, uh, it's racial partiality. This is the form of it. Any form of partiality. James in the New Testament describes partiality being shown towards those who are rich, those who have means. You know, when a rich person comes in your church gathering, you're all like, hey, why don't you sit in the front, bro? Like, I got the best seat for you. Like, you want coffee? We got cream. We got all these nice things that are taken care of for you because really there's an agenda at the end of the day that's trying to show partiality to try to, like, milk that guy for what he's worth. And then a poor person comes in that doesn't really have anything. It's like, oh, look, check it out. We got a closet seat for you to go occupy. And he's saying that's partiality. 
That's an injustice that needs to never be done, especially amongst God's people. That's what God says. Don't do this. Lastly, Psalm 89, verse 14, I'm done. Psalm 89, verse 14. If we can have the worship team call mom on up, we're going to get ready to have some communion together, and then we're going to go off live from our live stream. Again, if you guys that are watching live would like to join us in future times together as we partake of communion, we've got a parking lot filled with people. We'd love to have you come. There's room, there's seat, there's a, play, there's a space for you. You're welcomed here. But lastly, I want to read this, and then we'll go off. Psalm 89, verse 14 says this, Referring to God, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. I just want you to pause and meditate on this. When I say meditate, just think, pause, consider, reflect. What forms the foundation of God's throne? Uh, let me ask you another question. <laughs> As I would definitely not recommend watching this, but Game of Thrones. What forms the foundation of of the kings and queens of those in that very long series. What forms the foundation of almost every earthly politician's throne or kingdom or domain? Is it justice? It's usually not. It's usually injustice, deceit, duplicity, lies. But Yahweh is different. The psalmist meditates upon the fact that, but Yahweh, God, his throne, the foundation upon which his throne is built upon is righteousness and justice. So I want for us to begin to think about, as we go to a time of just confession, and prayer, and then communion, is where are those areas in our lives, maybe, where injustices are allowed to live, where partiality that has occupied a portion of our heart where unrighteousness has taken a foothold. These are those areas that we can confess before God. Here's the beauty. God never cancels us. He always welcomes us. Cleanses us. He washes us. And as people that are encountering the presence of God, our aim is to be transformed, to become like God, so that we would then fully engage the mission of God. That's presence, transformation and mission so how about we all stand I'm going to pray we're going to go off live but for those of us that are here again, it's just so good to see all of you guys man this is our parking lot's full if you're watching online like parking lot's full of people it's awesome so as we go off live I want for us to just maybe bow our heads and to turn to God and to ask God to show you uh, the words of even the psalmist, I think, are a great way to begin. Where he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my ways. See if there's any wicked way in me. That's a posture that every Christian should always possess. Martin Luther, the founder of the Reformation, would describe the whole of the Christian life begins and ends with Repentance turning away from those things that our hearts oftentimes by default without even knowing just kind of gravitate towards it's a moment for us to just pause and reflect upon god's goodness but then to confess those things so right now in quietness silence confess those things um as you're thinking about these um our ushers will pass out the little cup so grab one 
Um, if you would like to partake of communion, uh, have it in your hand. We'll take it together. If you don't want to, that's fine. If your heart is not in the place where you want to uh, enter in and engage this, it's totally fine too. Again, uh, we are all at various places in our walk with God. Um, but let's just quiet our hearts right now, confess these things, and hear God's forgiveness. So forgive us, Father, of any offense, any area God in the heart has been complicit in or played a role in showing preference, not showing our neighbor the right due as an image bearer of God. God, we want to be people that are filled with neighborliness, that love all people, that care for the most vulnerable among us, just as your word describes. So God, there's areas where we've not done that. We just lay at your feet. We just ask you, shape us. You're renewed people. You bear the image of Jesus. And as you prayed that, I want you right now just to receive the forgiveness of Jesus as a pastor and as a minister of the gospel. I just pass on to you the reality of pardon. Your sin has been forgiven, washed away, cleansed. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian and you've called upon Jesus to wash you, to cleanse you, God has washed you and cleansed you. Receive that gift of his life. We're going to sing a song, and as soon as we're done singing this song, we'll partake of communion together. So let's just worship Jesus.